today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Now, we know, I think everybody listening knows about EpiPens. I think they are common enough that there's nobody who is not familiar with these things. We may not know exactly how they work or what they do, except that they work with allergies and they keep people alive. I think that's the uh, the level of understanding many people have. But we know they're important. And in fact, in this city, they have been considered important enough that Hamilton has put them in malls, uh, in restaurants, there are EpiPens. These are things that are there just in case, just in case, because I think it is widely considered that these things will save lives. Someone has an allergic reaction, a serious one, goes into anaphylactic shock. These can get that stopped, get that controlled. But here's a weird story today because it appears Canada is about to run out of EpiPens. We're in an EpiPen shortage. Now, not forever, but at least until the end of this month, they're saying, until the end of August, we are going to be facing a EpiPen shortage. It's a manufacturing shortage, apparently. And I'm not entirely sure I understand, but I'm guessing that my next guest will. Uh, his name is Dr. Joseph Greenbaum. He's, he has a private practice in allergy at the Charlton Medical Center. He's an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Department of Medicine at St. Joseph's Healthcare. Dr. Greenbaum joins us now. Sir, thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much for asking me. Uh, I think this may be one of those, well, duh questions right off the top. Um, And I think most people, as I said, kind of get already, but how important are EpiPens? (laughs) The most important thing, if you're an allergy person, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's really the difference between life and death. Uh, there's nothing else. It's that, it's that stark, like it really is a life ab- and death thing? A- absolutely. I mean, you know that people die of allergies, of uh, food allergies, bee allergies, sometimes medication allergies. It happens every day, <laughs> virtually. And um, it's the number one life-saving uh, portable device that you have. I mean, you can call an ambulance, but the ambulance may not get there in time. It can be fast enough that within five or ten minutes that could be the end. I'm not saying that's in all cases, but it can be that bad. And and someone who has a uh, life-threatening type of allergy needs to always carry at least one or two of these devices with them. How Do we have any idea in this province, in this country, how many people are reliant on EpiPens or, or, or I guess could be reliant on EpiPens? How many people have allergies that are that severe? Uh, you know, I'll say up to 3%. Up to 3% of the population has... Uh, some type of food allergy of varying degrees, you know, like one, uh, three out of a hundred have some degree of allergy that uh, could be life-threatening depending on how much they ingest, under what circumstances they ingest. Uh, So that would be well over a million people in this country, (sighs) give or take. Uh, Yeah. uh, You can hold me to a million. You can hold me to a (laughs) half a million, but even a half a million. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Sure, a lot of people. Do we know how many EpiPens actually have to be used every month or every year? Is this common for them? I think the vast majority of people are very careful and rarely use it. You know, so the vast majority expire and they have to get new ones. Uh, but every once in a while, there's always an accident. You know, and uh, look at someone's lifespan of getting a peanut allergy when they're um, a year and a half old. You know, I've seen people who two or three times uh, between between zero and uh, 30 years old have had to use one. Uh, So it isn't often used, but you have that peace of mind that if something happens by accident and you just were not careful enough, or even if you were careful enough and you got it anyways, you know, you have it. 
So uh, it's a very important um, mental thing, but also it's life-saving for sure. And do most people have multiple EpiPens? If you're an al- if you're yeah. you called it a, an allergy person, is that the correct definition now? As we uh, describe them, an allergy person. Well, let's say in common words, but you want to be a little bit more technical. You say atopic. Okay. You know, okay. But yes, if you're an allergy person. Uh, the majority usually have two or three because they have one in the car, one in the house, and sometimes they carry two with them depending on how severe the allergy might be. So at this point then, when there's a shortage in this country, and if people generally have multiples, even if they have to use one, that would, uh, that would mean probably they still have one or two lying around. I, uh, so are we at a, at a concern phase or a crisis phase, or what, is, what does this mean then? I, I don't think it's crisis because they're still there. They're just uh, asking you to buy less. And also there's an official expiry date, and we know for sure that they're uh, 100% good at least six months past the expiry date, and pre- maybe up to 80% beneficial, uh, even a year or two after the expiry date. Now, we don't encourage people to have it any longer than six months because then it does start to fall off depending on how it's been stored or whatever. Uh, but, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, there is enough right now to slowly dole out to people who do need it. How, so how it long are they good before the expiry date? Is this like a three-year thing that they're good uh, for anyway? Uh, most often you get a year and a half out of it hmm. for an expiry date. Okay, but then you extend that another six months, but after that, you're not so not so clear. Does any part of the fact that the shortage is happening now and we are in the middle of summer, are those things connected? Because, you know, summertime is when the bees are out and other things are happening. Is, is there a, a higher usage in summertime? I don't think that's the, the issue. I think the shortage has been going on for about a year, uh, and uh, maybe it's becoming a little bit more short right now. And so there ha- this, this last month is a little bit more critical. Uh, there's also a shortage in the United States, although maybe it's a little bit easier to obtain it, but you need a prescription if you're going to get it in the United States from a U.S. physician, usually. Uh, so I don't think it's a summer issue. I think it's a manufacturing issue. They're having trouble making the devices properly, make sure, making sure that they work. So I, I don't understand exactly what's going on. There's I was going to ask, yeah. I was going to ask because this is, they've been around for how long now? Lo- oh many, boy. many years, right? Uh, 20, 30, yeah. yeah. And so how, and I read the same thing, it's a manufacturing problem. So at first I thought, okay, there's got to be some shortage of the chemical or the whatever they're putting in there, but that yeah. doesn't sound like it. It's no, the, there's lots of adrenaline, like in emergency departments and vials, okay. absolutely no shortage at all. You know, it's just this. Why is there a shortage? You know, I don't know. I think it's, um, you know, it's like uh, car companies. They just get the uh, materials right at the moment that they need it. They don't stockpile it. You know, it's a question of uh, business uh, uh, tactics and, uh, you know, how to save the most amount of money and still get this thing out. And by the way, an interesting tidbit is they were first invented uh, for NASA when they were sending astronauts, first sending astronauts, you know, I forgot the first guy from Ohio, John Glenn. Uh, it was invented for him. You know, so that was that takes you back to 1970, maybe. Wow. That's, that's when they first came out. Before that, they were just needles, but NASA wanted something more foolproof. That's how they came about. Exactly why there's a, sh- a manufacturing shortage of this device that's been around so long, I don't know. But what it also con- confuses me about this is that yeah. th- this seems to be, because there is, as you say, so let's say 3% of the population might need these, they are going to have to be replaced. They're going to be used. There's obviously a market 
for these. And yet, as I understand it, we only have one manufacturer that makes them in this country. That seems odd to me. Well, you know, there's some other manufacturers in the world, and a European version of this has already been approved in Canada, but uh, I'm not sure why they're not getting it off the ground. You know, you look, if you look across the board at industry, you see a lot of these kind of things happening, you know, where suddenly, you know, they don't have the right uh, nut for this wheel, and the cars have this production that has to slow down. And if you look at medicines in general, uh, we're having a shortage of insect venom to treat people who are allergic to insect venom, and we're having shortages in cancer drugs and all kinds of things. You know, it's, uh, uh, I think it's, the philosophy is uh, just make enough to keep the market going. Don't have too much around because you're going to waste it or whatever. It's a business uh, decision rather than a medical decision. Are you at all cynical or suspicious that um, a shortage, shortages often uh, can lead to increased prices down the road because we realize how much we need it? Is there, is there any thought in your mind that this no. m- may no. be that? No, I think it's an honest business issue. You know, uh, I don't think they're about to increase the price. They, you know, they tried to do that uh, in the United States, <clears throat> and then the FDA came down hard on it. They are more expensive in the States, but they tried to sort of double or triple the price. Well, wasn't it that guy who, uh, I can't remember his name, who said he, that one company in the States that was going to like raise it by 50 times, and he got, uh, wasn't that, weren't those EpiPens? Yeah, those were EpiPens, and then the price was knocked down. But it's still uh, knocked down to almost where it was before mm. uh, because of pressure from Congress and a big outcry through the United States. Uh, but it's still more, everything is a little bit more expensive in the States, these kind of things. Like, for example, your general Ventolin inhaler is more expensive. Uh, maybe it's because of um, um, uh, public uh, uh, health here that we have uh, um, uh, drug plans where people can... Uh, uh, the companies can buy en masse, and therefore it's a little bit less expensive. I'm not sure. But anyway, they are a little bit more expensive in the States, but not like they were when they, like they wanted to at one point in time. Okay, doctor, this, this leads me to the one thing that, that really interests me. I mean, this whole thing is interesting, but that really I've often wondered about this. When I was in school, and I'm not, you know, I'm not that old, but I go back into the 70s and 80s when I was very young, we every single day, Every kid brought a peanut butter sandwich to school. <laughs> right, right. Every single kid had milk. Right. Every kid had eggs. There were kids that would have brought tuna or salmon on their sandwiches. Right, right. We had no, well, seemingly no allergies, right. certainly no extreme allergies. We never heard of some kid going into right. anaphylactic shock. Right. What has happened? Why have things changed so that now we seem to have so many more cases? The best theory is the uh, uh, hypo- the hygiene hypothesis that if you look back in 1950, uh, you know the incidence of allergy among the general population of all allergies was something like three or four percent, and the genetic makeup of the Canadians has not really altered that much, despite immigrants and whatever. We're still a majority Anglo-Saxon country, and but still genetic makeup has not changed. But what we're doing with ourselves has changed. So now the incidence of allergy in general, not just life-threatening food allergy, is somewhere about 20-25%. It's like gone up fivefold, And it's because we're washing our babies too much, uh, and therefore we, we don't have a skin barrier to protect them from airborne allergies that enter through the skin. We are uh, having more um, um, caesarean sections. So when the baby comes out of the birth canal, it's not swallowing all kinds of bacteria that go into its gut. Uh, to generate uh, a diverse microbiome, as we call it, 
to educate our immune systems to fight allergy and, uh, and not to have allergy. Uh, we're eating a lot more processed food, uh, and that also has an influence in the way our um, um, a lot more omega-6 versus omega-3 foods. For example, eating a lot more beef and chicken as opposed to fish, and that also influences the way our immune system um, matures. So there's all kinds of these lifestyle things that have changed from 1950. Uh, uh, one, one, this diet thing I, is uh, important. Um, in 1930, omega uh, Three was, um, uh, uh, I think the answer is 30%, 30 times more omega-3 in the diet then. And now it's only um, a small portion of our diet. That, that has an influence on certain types of fatty acids that are being produced, and they lead to generation of allergy processes in the body. So there's dietary factors, there's hygiene factors, there's... Um, um, uh, washing of uh, skin factors. Uh, there's slow introduction of foods. In the old days, we used to say, if there might be some allergy in your family, don't give peanut until you're three or four years old. We know that that actually fosters the development of allergy. And if now, if you introduce peanut when you're three, four, five months, as soon as you can start swallowing, then you become tolerant to this. Hmm. So there's a lot of these things that we call epigenetic. The way the environment and the lifestyle has changed uh, which is fostering the development of allergy. We're just beginning to sort of understand all this to try to change the gut bacteria, to try to change the diet, to try to change the hygiene, to not introduce antibiotics at an early age, which also influences development of allergy. All these little factors in our lifestyle have led us to like five-fold more allergies. Uh, some of those things, when you talk about C-sections or you talk about yes. the washing your babies, are those... Very important. Are those very, very theories critical. or are those no, n- no. established uh, I, factors? I would, call it, I would call it established. For example, there was a, a study, I don't, know, I don't know if you want to hear the details, in Nigeria, uh, a part of this little village were living like they did uh, four or five hundred years ago, and a part were government employees living in... Um, uh, apartment buildings with lots of uh, uh, showers and baths and uh, hygiene, okay? And so, the, but the same people, okay? So the ones in the higher echelons who had uh, better life, uh, lifestyle uh, the in, and washing their kids every day, giving them baths, uh, their uh, incidence of allergy went up like we have in Canada to 25%, whereas their neighbors just down the street living in huts still at 5%. So... Uh, washing babies is very important. Uh, not having a cesarean section, but, you know, that's a medical issue, uh, obstetrical issue, is also very important. Not giving antibiotics to change the microbiome of the gut is very important. Introducing all kinds of raw foods and everything you might want to imagine that might be an allergy early on at age six months or beyond, or sorry, earlier, as soon as the child can swallow. All these are very important things well-established. So although we call it hygiene hypothesis, there's uh, multiple, multiple um, studies showing that this is really true, that this is the reason for this rise in incidence of allergy. But it sounds like then what you're saying is by the time that we or our kids are, I don't know, one or two or three years old, we've pretty much doomed them to a life of allergies if we've done it wrong. That's right. We have to start in pregnancy. We have to start when you're pregnant. This is what you've got to do to sort of stop your child from becoming allergic, and especially in the families that have allergies. 
That is um, that is both interesting and devastating <laughs> to know for people well, listening when they got their seven-year-old kid and you go, why has he got a peanut? Well, you did it to him. Well, not really. We're not going to blame the parent. They didn't know necessarily, but that's. it sounds like there's, there's factors that could have been fixed. Yeah, we've got to get the message out to sort of revert our lifestyle to the way it was before. And, and that is very scientifically proven strong at this point. It is, uh, it is fascinating, fascinating stuff yeah. for anyone, okay. especially for anyone who has allergies or has kids or grandkids who have allergies because it is a, again, with the, the, the whole thing with these serious cases where the EpiPens are needed, it's a terrifying thing. I, I, I have family members who have had to right. use it, and it's, it is terrifying when those things happen. Um, so your, your backup is call an ambulance because the ambulances have it even without the EpiPen just in the little vials of adrenaline in which there's no shortage, you know, and extend the life by at least six months, maybe a year. So don't throw it away right away. And I bet you, you know what, if you ever had this happen, I bet you if you screamed out, does anyone have an EpiPen? I bet you there's someone around who probably does. You're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't have any allergy myself, although I have some grandkids with allergies, but I always carry two in my briefcase. Mm. Always. Dr. Joseph Greenbaum, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye-bye. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.